Okay, so we're going to, we're going to walk through Romans um, in 45 minutes. Okay, so you can bear with me, amen, brethren? Bear with me. Um, we're going to cover some highlights of Romans. Um, 45 minutes won't do it any justice, but we'll, we'll, we have to stay on course. So let's pray, and then we will um, look at the study together. Holy Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning. Uh, we thank you for, again, um, we do not take for granted the privilege that we have uh, to meet together publicly, openly, freely, um, in, in this building, no less. We thank you for that. And uh, having been here now almost three years, we're very thankful and grateful for all that you provide, for your abounding grace, which Romans proclaims. Lord, may we have an edifying time to, to get somewhat of an overview of this glorious epistle this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans, the great uh, Magna Carta of the Gospel. Um, it's been said that Romans is, is simple enough for a child to understand its greatest message, but yet deep enough that theologians drown in it, no doubt about it. Uh, the great 20th century Bible teacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones began a study in the book of Romans in October of 1955 and finished, actually he didn't even finish, in March 68. And he said that he failed to exhaust its riches. <laughs> what I'm going to do in 45 minutes... <laughs> we'll certainly fail to exhaust the riches of Romans, but uh, the great men um, from throughout church history have been greatly affected by God the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. Uh, great men of, of singular devotion to the Word of God, such as Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, and Edwards, um, although certainly would have, uh, we find mild disagreements in their theology they would almost certainly agree that the greatest theologian of all time, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. And the great thing about him is that he wasn't some uh, ivory tower theologian. He was a, a missionary. He was a pastor. He was an elder of the Church of Jesus Christ. I'm intimately involved with the people of God. So... He's quite a man, and um, to study Romans, to understand Romans, um, you, you, get, you grab hold of this book and understand that you, you will have a very good grasp of the entire Bible. And um, so I find it's going to be very beneficial for our body to go through it verse by verse, as we have been for a number of weeks now. So, Paul here, he provides us a very careful exposition of the gospel. So his mission, as you know, was to proclaim the gospel to all people, to Jews and Gentiles alike. Um, you know, being a Roman citizen and being a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, the son of a Pharisee, the grandson of a Pharisee, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, you know, Paul, by the time he was 21 years of age, had the equivalent of uh, two PhDs, historians tell us, and he considered it all as nothing compared to the riches that he had in Christ. So uh, we see the greeting and the introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Uh, we won't spend a lot of time there. We just preached that a few weeks ago. Um, he, he longed to go to Rome. He goes, I thank God in verse 8 through Jesus Christ for you all uh, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 
And the great thing about you know, Paul uh, being Jewish, a Jew of Jews, he was also a Roman citizen. So God in his providence, God in his sovereignty, uh, made use of Paul being a Jew and a Roman citizen to really bridge the gap and being able to preach to um, all kinds of men in all kinds of places. Uh, the, the overarching theme of Romans is chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. That's it. It's Romans. So after this, Paul states the theme. He goes on and he states the universal reality of man's guilt. Verse 18 begins, The wrath of God is real from heaven against all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to every single person that has ever breathed, that has ever taken a breath in this life and has grown to see trees and hills and mountains and seas, even the likes of Helen Keller, which I shared, who was born blind and deaf, um, when she was taught how to communicate, and uh, a theologian and pastor um, communicated to her the gospel, she said... Oh, him I know. I just didn't know his name. What to call him. So God has revealed himself through the created order. Um, all mankind is without excuse. That's the first indictment against mankind. But men suppress this truth in their unrighteousness. And they go in an attempt to form God in their own image. And therefore, they, are turned, they turn themselves into idolaters. And they worship cre- the creature rather than the creator so he goes on to define the condemnation uh, against all mankind in verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1 we see the pagan Gentile in the the outward manifestation of the evil within and how that um, is made evident through their lives he continues on to talk about the morally upright individual which I won't spend a lot of time on because I'm going to preach on that today I'm going to preach about the good, the good people. The good folk. So there's an indictment against them. And then there's an indictment against the religious Jew. Um, those who have the very oracles of God. Those who know the word of God. And uh, he, he, he explains in chapter 2 that there's an inward kind of knowledge. Not just by that which is created. But uh, there's a conscience that all of mankind has been given. Um, so that they innately know what is right and wrong. And then he moves, as I said, to the, to the Jewish, religious, um, I know the word of God individual. And he declares that, verse 10, chapter 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. Everybody's guilty. No one can withstand the judgment of God. The only way to be made acceptable by God is by way of an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of us. So there's no good news in Romans until chapter 3. 
And we get to verse 21. It says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Okay, so in verses 21 to 31 of chapter 3, we see the very source of righteousness. Granted to sinners. And all are sinners. And then he goes on in chapter 4 and provides an example of that righteousness. Okay, this is a righteousness that is alien to us. It comes from outside of us. We can't work this up in ourselves. No Jew can do it. No religious Jew can do it. No pagan Gentile can do it. No mystical religious ideologist can work up a righteousness in and of themselves. It comes to us. And the example of that kind of righteousness is through the life of one named Abraham. So Paul reaches way back in redemptive history. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, What shall we say? What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right? So, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Faith in God. Faith in Christ alone. They look forward by faith to the promised one. To this righteousness that God himself would provide. So, here is the living example of one who was granted this kind of faith and therefore lived by faith. He hoped in the promises of God. Verse 20, No distrust distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to who? To God alone. And that is why salvation is a gift. Ephesians 2, no one can therefore what? Boast. There's no boasting. He's fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, verse 21. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. So all men are guilty. To be saved, it requires a righteousness that comes from outside of us. He gives us the source of that righteousness in chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. He provides an example of that righteous faith being lived out in all of chapter 4 through um, Abraham. And then we see the blessing of this alien righteousness. If you notice chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No longer at war. Right Before one is granted faith, they're at war with God and he is at war with them. You know, I've been witnessing to my neighbors for the 17 years I've been living in, the ho- in our home. And, and this is just as, as an encouragement to all, is, is you preach the truth, as you share the gospel with people, and they snicker at you, sneer at you, they drive down the street when you're in your front yard and pretend they're busy doing something so they don't have to wave at you, right? 
exactly what I've witnessed through this one particular family for 17 years. And uh, however, when the wheels seem to be falling off the wagon of life, guess where they come? Praise God. After 9-11, down to my house. People were tripping. Yesterday, we're getting all ready for this wedding. I had to do this wedding yesterday. It was great. So we had some folks over preparing this bride. So there's all this excitement on one hand. And yet down the street come these two people. One of them is a neighbor of mine who grew up in the house across the street. He's a little older than I am. Doesn't live there any longer. And, and she um, is a lesbian. So I've witnessed the gospel to her many times. Once when she had cancer, I went and visited her in the hospital. She was very receptive then. <laughs> uh, never did take. At least not yet. Well, a friend of hers that she grew up with down the street, who still lives down the street, is 43 years old. Okay, dying of um, self-inflicted wounds due to alcoholism and whatnot. Drugs and alcohol. And asked if I would come down and pray. So before that, they sat in my living room yesterday afternoon and I said, look, I, I'm not, I don't know what you expect of me, but uh, if you believe in a last right, rights type of thing, there is no such thing. And I need to let you know that if I'm going to go down there, I'm going to sit at her bedside and I'm going to tell her the truth of the gospel. That she needs a righteousness alien to her. She needs a righteousness that comes from outside of her. She needs a righteousness that comes from only one, and it's Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. He is Messiah. He is Lord. He came to uphold the law in the place of sinners like me, lay down his life. He raised up again, validating who he was, that he is indeed Lord, and he's the only hope. And other than that, I can't go down there. They said, you got it. So I cut the deal. <laughs> and I went down there. And she's younger than me but looks older than my folks who were 70. Just shriveled up, dying on this bed, could die at any moment. And uh, so I, I, I knelt. I got to the side of the bed, grabbed her hand, and started sharing gospel truth. Right? We're all sinners. I said, I'm John, your neighbor down the street. I'm a, I'm a sinner who's in desperate need of the grace of God. So I, I was doing this whole I mean, as soon as I'm talking about Christ, she's, she's not even conscious. She's like in a comatose state. I grab her hand. I'm saying these things. She opens her eyes and looks at me and looks mad. Pulls her hand away and kind of rolls on her side. I don't know what she was thinking. I have no way to register how she was interpreting what I was saying. But it wasn't all that friendly. And the point is that outside of the abounding, abundant, salvific grace of God, no man, no woman has any hope at all. Period. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. It is a gift, and no one, no one, no one can boast. Period. We all agree with that, amen? Unless she is granted the faith that will enable her to believe in Christ alone. For righteousness alone that will get her heaven. She won't be able to believe. She won't be able to believe. So 
so that's the, this is the blessing of righteousness. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer at war with Him. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There you have the three main key doctrines of soteriology, justification, sanctification, and glorification. We've been justified by faith. That's peace with God. Grants us peace with God. Through Him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, the sanctifying reality of that salvation, and we rejoice in the hope of glory. Future salvation. Heaven. Presence of God. For while we were still weak, verse 6, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there is the blessing of righteousness. And then in verse 12 to 21, we see uh, the imputation of righteousness. Imputation means satisfaction. God's wrath was satisfied. Therefore, verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, proving of course that sin is, the consequence of sin is death because the law had not been written on stone at this point. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, providing the free gift, verse 15, is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more we have grace of God, the grace of God, the free gift, by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Okay? So there's the blessing of righteousness, there's the imputation of righteousness in verses 12 to 21 of chapter 5, and then we see the demonstration of righteousness in our own lives. Okay. Uh, yes, Abraham was somewhat of a demonstration. He was our example of someone who believed by faith. Here we see the practical demonstration of righteousness known as sanctification. Chapter 6, we're dead to sin, we're alive to God. Faith that is made manifest by a changed life. We're continually being conformed into the image of Christ. Right? We're saved at this point. Let's say you get saved here. This is justification. This is glorification. We've all seen there's no one who walks this kind of scale. Amen? In sanctification. Sanctification looks more like this. Right? And then when you do this by the grace of God, if you're on a spiritually boastful platitude. <laughs> right? And this is how we grow. Paul didn't even grow like this. This is the sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit in our lives. So because of all this justifying grace through faith, um, as sinful as man is, in spite of himself, God saves us. He comes to the sinner. He grants him the ability to believe. He, he imparts to him a righteousness that is not his own, but it is God's righteousness. And then he, Paul start, he asks the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Answer, absolutely not. 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? Jump down to verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. No longer slaves. Amen? No longer slaves to sin but slaves of our master, Jesus Christ. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under what? Grace. Now, the indwelling spirit is the norm for Christian living now. Amen? It's not the Ten Commandments. It's not the law engraved upon stone. It's the Spirit of God. In the Word of God, the law of God written on our hearts. It is the Spirit of God who enables us to have a godly walk. In some days, it looks more godly than others. Yeah? We'll all agree to that. Okay, so, having been freed from the law, when we get to chapter 7, especially when you get down to verses 15 to 25, um, Paul describes this intense conflict that every believer experiences in his or her life in Christ. If you look down at verse 15, he says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I, if I, do, what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Okay, now, for the believer, Christ indeed indwells me and thee. Amen? For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. Christ lives in me. Uh, but nevertheless, if we look at verse 17, sin also dwells within me. In verse 20, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This old sinful flesh which we carry around with us until we're glorified. This is what we fight against. Spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. These are contrary to one another. So we must kill the desires of the flesh and be filled with and walk in the power of the spirit. We're freed from the law. We're free in Christ. But yet this war, the flesh and the spirit rages on. And we get to chapter 8, we see um, the assurance of God's manifold wisdom. Verses 12 to 17 describes that we're heirs with Christ. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit are what? Sons of God. You can only be led by the Spirit if you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you're a child of God. Regenerated. Sealed for 
forever. And we have that anticipated hope of the coming day of the Lord. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we're, we're given this assurance. And because of all this, verse 1, chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. He's the only one that could possibly condemn sin in the flesh. He was sinless. So we have the promise that we are heirs indeed with Christ. If we jump down to verse 18 and 19, we see a hope of future glory. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the certain, with, for the creation rather, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. we jump down and we have to do this because we just don't have enough time. We, we see God's everlasting um, love um, and assurance in verses 31 to the end of the chapter. So he says this, after all this glory is true, after all this, the, the reality of a righteousness that comes to us from outside of us, uh, the reality of this battle that we face every day, the sin in the flesh, uh, the reality of the fact that there really is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we get to verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who possibly can be against us? He who did not spare his own son gave him up for all, gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Answer? No. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? Danger? Sword? No, no, no. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are guarded as sheep. Regarded, rather, as sheep to be slaughtered. <clears throat> and all these things were more than conquerors, super conquerors in Christ, through Him who loved us. Are you assured of that? Are you assured of that, beloved? Amen? I know you're tired. We'll just go, yes, we're assured of that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's God's everlasting love and assurance. Then we get to chapter 9, verse 1. To and through chapter 11, verse 36, we see, uh, I guess, the theme of uh, restoration of righteousness or the reception of God's righteousness. We see here the theme of divine grace. We see the theology of sovereign choice. God's sovereign choice. We see Israel's uh, original election is God's purposes in election. We see them used as an illustration. They can dramatize between the elective purposes of God as he uses as an example Jacob and Esau. And the fact that God's salvation, his salvific plan is, is based totally on the grace of God. That's his next argument. And, and as you know, Paul, uh, there's this liter literary style of writing here known as a diatribe. It's a kind of uh, uh, critical discourse between an imaginary opponent. 
And we're going to see some of that today in chapter 2. And we see it used throughout the epistle. It's this imaginary dialogue. And when we get to chapter 9, he talks about God's sovereign choice. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. If you jump down to verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your shall your offspring be named. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, who our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, not because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Now, some will say at this point, well, God is unfair. God's unjust. Okay? So Paul continues, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So some will ask at this point, what about human free will? Right? That's the argument here. What about human free will? Paul answers the question. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. So salvation is not ultimately based on some manner of human effort, but as we see here, entirely upon God's merciful will. Amen? It's clear. The scripture says to Pharaoh, verse 17, it's for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, and he hardened Pharaoh. God showed himself in a mighty way, Pharaoh hardened his heart. God showed himself in another mighty way, Pharaoh hardened his heart. God showed himself again, God hardened his heart. Or you could say, God released his hand of restraint from Pharaoh and left him to himself. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now some will say at this point, how then can God possibly find fault in those who resist him and those who resist his will? That's what you hear, right? Paul answers the question. Well, then you'll say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If it's up to God who is going to harden, if he hardens them, how can they be, how can they be held accountable for being hardened? So he continues, and he answers the question with a question. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Do you see why most preachers don't preach from Romans 9? <laughs> who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for what? For glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Bottom line, God owes salvation to nobody. That's the point. Nobody. Let's just say that you represent the population of the world. This group of people in this room. This is God. And he owes none of us salvation. We're born sinners by nature. People don't go to hell because of their condition. They go to hell by deeds of the flesh, which they can't help to commit because of their condition. Right? And unless He plucks us from death, there's no hope. And He does as He wills. Then why pray for people's salvation? Because it's in accordance to the will of God that we do so. And somehow, as he prompts us to pray, as I've been praying for these neighbors of mine, this could be the manifestation of the prayers that he prompted me to pray 17 years ago anyhow. And on my way past their house this morning, I pray that salvation will come to that house. That's his to do. That's his to do. So then, verse 16, again, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. And then we get to chapter 10. We see uh, the gospel uh, declared through human instruments. It happens to be the means for which God reaches the world with his gospel. It's not that he needs us, amen? I can't stand when I hear, you know, God needs you out there. You know, God needs us to do this. No, he doesn't. He commands us to do this, but He doesn't need us. Verse uh, 8. But what does it say then? The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. doesn't mean to believe about, but believe in. I, I believe by faith in Christ. It's His righteousness that I need. I can't do this. I'm already judged guilty. I need this righteousness. I believe in Him. I trust in Him alone for my salvation. The Bible says that's faith and you're saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him in whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the words of Christ. We get to participate. So, human agency of gospel proclamation. We get to chapter 11. We, the question is raised, okay, what about ethnic Israel? What about the Jews? I mean, they're the root of the tree, amen? 
Okay, what about the root of the tree? Has God cast them off forever? As a national entity, they rejected Messiah. Jesus declared that the age of the end of Judaism is coming. There's the temple. Everything that represents this people and the God that they're called to serve will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. Does that mean God is done? No, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Elijah's like, Lord, there are no other believers but me. On the grand scheme of things, at this day, it looked as though there are no Jews who believed. There's just a small little sect of people known as the way. God knows who are his. What, but what is God's reply to him? Verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by what? By grace. God has one plan of salvation, beloved. Amen? One. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Jump down to verse... We're almost at the time, 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am not, I am rather an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. Jump down to verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. In other words, Messiah came through the bloodline of ethnic Israel. That was God's plan. And you're only saved by grace, Gentile. But yet, any ethnic Jews also only saved by grace. Amen? Then you will say, branches were broken off, verse 19, so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, so you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverance will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Verse 30, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. So all Israel will be saved. Now we ask that question, what does that mean? Does that mean every single ethnic Jew from throughout time, because of their ethnicity, will be saved? Remember chapter 9, verse 6. 
It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So, you know, you had that, the seed of Abraham. You have, there's more than one seed. You have ethnic seed. You have the spiritual seed, right? And you have the true seed, the unique seed, is Jesus Christ. And unless the spiritual, that spiritual, only that spiritual seed can place and have faith in the unique seed, which is Jesus Christ, that's the standard and the only way to be saved. So if all Israel is to be saved, what else shall we conclude other than the fact that every elect ethnic Jew will indeed come to saving faith in God's due time? In other words, he's not casting them off as a people because as an ethnic people, as an ethnic entity, they rejected Messiah. God knows who his are. And in time, from this day when this was written to this day, I believe it can be nothing else but any ethnic Jew who is elect by the will of God before the foundation of the earth will indeed be saved. So they haven't been cast off. And if God is going to do a, a rush, a, a, a kind of rush job, and we're going to see a mass amount of ethnic Jewish people come to saving faith, glory be to God. Who wouldn't want that? This Jewish school, I, I pray for these kids. They cut through our parking lot all the time, and they kick open our gate over there, which we need to tighten up, by the way, John. They kick the gate open, to pay, and I never say anything, it's fine, but I just pray for these little kids as they walk by with their tassels and their little hamakas and all, right? They're being taught a lie. They're taught a lie. That's heresy. Only God, is He individually plucks these people out from their unbelief, will they be saved? That's it. That is it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the words of Christ. Okay, and then in two minutes for the rest of this glorious book, that's the theology, in a nutshell, no doubt, of the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11. And then we see the application of the theology in chapter 12, verse 1, to chapter 15, verse 3. Practical application of all this glorious truth. Chapter 12, living sacrifices. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. This is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In verses 9 through 18, we see the marks of true Christianity described. Do not be slothful in zeal, fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another, outdo one another in showing honor, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, verse 12, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality, and so on. Chapter 13, we, we see the order, the command to submit to governing authorities. Christians want to whine and complain, you know, uh, about the government. Right? We want to stand for what's right. We have the opportunity to vote against gay marriages. You vote against gay marriage. You don't vote for it. Because it's contrary to the natural, what's natural. Amen? 
And then some Christians will go, well, you know, if God's moving His hand of restraint, I don't want to get in His way. You won't. You won't. Amen? We're called to love God. We're called to love our neighbor. We're called to love and pray for our enemies. So we would not even want to think or hope or cheer for God to move His hand of restraint upon society. We wouldn't want that. It's obvious that He's seemingly doing that. That's His deal. Amen? You're not going to usher in the second coming of Christ by voting for gay marriage so that we implode. Right? It's ridiculous. People think like that. It's crazy. So, the submission to authorities. See, the government is set in order by God to restrain evil. And if the government changes the law that is contrary to the natural order of God, we don't go along with them. Amen? No, we do not. Do not pass judgment on a brother. That's chapter 14. Christian liberty. If you have liberty in this area as a Christian, don't press that on your brother or sister and cause them to stumble. If you have a, a level of consciousness about something that you don't think Christians should do, but the Bible's not clear on it, don't press that as a law on your brother who does have that freedom. That's basically what he talks about. Christian liberty, uh, don't cause another brother to stumble. Chapter 15, we see the conclusion, uh, great benediction um, into chapter uh, 15 and 16. And then uh, he gets personal greetings all through chapter 16, men and women who, who worked hard and assisted Paul. And uh, he defines his love for them and appreciation for them. So There's a little overview. <laughs> Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this glorious epistle. May we all grow in grace. May we all grow in the knowledge of your Son, our Savior. You are holy, preeminent, almighty God who is omnipresent and ever personal in and through our lives because of your Holy Spirit. And uh, we thank you for the communion of the saints, the body of Christ. May you prepare our hearts to worship together and those coming in. May we glorify your name and may you be exalted in your church built up this day through your word in Jesus' name.